Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Profile Podcast. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that sponsors this show. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue featuring Bishop Michael Curry, please go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we'd be delighted to get in touch and send you a free copy of the latest edition. But today on the show, I'm delighted to say that my colleague and indeed the former editor of Premier Christianity magazine, Justin Briley, is going to bring us an interview he did back in 2014 with Rick Warren. Rick Warren, of course, is very well known as a church leader, author of The Purpose Driven Life and more. But this interview was actually recorded shortly after his son tragically took his own life. So we're going to listen in to this interview that's never been broadcast before on the Profile podcast. We're bringing it to you this week. Without any further ado, let's listen in to Justin Brawley in conversation with Rick Warren. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello, welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Briley, your presenter on The Profile today, with a very special interview that I conducted recently with megachurch pastor and author Rick Warren. Rick Warren is the author of the best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, which has sold millions of copies around the world. He's also the pastor of Saddleback Church in California, where over 20,000 people meet for services every weekend, which he's run with his wife Kay for the last 30 or so years. Their life was turned upside down over a year ago when their youngest son Matthew committed suicide. Rick and Kay both took a break from ministry and from doing any interviews for some time. But recently they've decided to start speaking about their tragedy, their loss, but also about the purpose in their pain. Rick Warren was over with Kay for the leadership conference that Holy Trinity Brompton put on in May this year and I caught up with him to talk about what life has been like since they lost Matthew over a year ago. I caught up with Rick just after he had spoken at the leadership conference in a cafe in South Kensington. Well, of course, uh, a year ago I had a son who took his life after struggling with mental illness for 27 years and that became international news. Mm. He had struggled since a baby with mental illness. The day that I prayed would never happen and the day that I feared might happen happened five days after Easter last year. And uh, so we've been on a grief journey for the last year. And uh, Kay and I, this morning, Nikki interviewed us about mm. grief mm. and about the process and about the lessons learned. And uh, since Matthew was a baby, we've known that someday we would be spokesmen for mental illness. Because mm. you don't have somebody in your family and you see the struggle and the pain that they go through uh, without knowing you're supposed to use it for good. Mm. But we didn't really make much of it outside of the church. Which many people in the church knew Matthew struggled. But it was hard enough being my son, much less being struggling with mental illness. And so we, it was his story to tell. Yeah. So to protect his dignity, we kind of kept it quiet. Uh, but after he died, then uh, the news was national and international, and so we just thought, well, I may as well grieve nationally too. Yeah. And 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 I did. I said we're not going to do any interviews for six months because we we didn't even know what we were feeling, and we we're just grieving parents. And yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, people wanted to do interviews. We said no. 
So what I did is I just started sharing my feelings on social media. And so I'm on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Google Plus and Instagram. And I just started sharing some of these things. And I realized that people were coming out of the woodwork. That people going, that's me. That's my problem. Or that's my brother's problem. Or that's my son's problem. And, and it, it just, the floodgates opened. And Kay started sharing on her uh, social media, on Facebook and Twitter too. And again, I, I'm not exaggerating, maybe... I don't know, 10,000 people yeah. have have written yeah. uh, or connected in some way saying, you know, I lost someone through suicide. I mm. lost a friend through mental illness. And, and it's, everybody knows somebody. Yeah. Ten years ago, uh, after I wrote Purpose Driven Life, we used a lot of that money to launch, uh, actually almost all of the money, about 95% of it, uh, to launch three different charities. One is called Acts of Mercy, which deals with people with HIV and AIDS, uh, vulnerable women and children, orphans. Another was called uh, Equipping Leaders, which is the charity that I ran, uh, which allowed me to travel around the world like this and do it for free and not take honorariums and not take any income from that and, uh, and pay our own way. So it allowed us to go to a lot of little villages you've never heard of and help pastors in areas that could never afford to bring somebody in to speak. So this morning, uh, the opening session was really about uh, dealing with loss. Mm. And one of the things I was saying is that grief is actually a gift. Mm. We we don't realize, we don't think of it as a gift. And guys, we're not good at grieving because we don't like negative emotions. We kind of stuff it. (laughs) And we, we, we like the happy emotions. We don't like the sad emotions. And yet, the Bible says God grieves. Grief is actually a godly emotion. God Jesus grieves. wept. Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with sorrows. And, and so, um, while shock is a human emotion, when Matthew took his life, it was very shocking. Mm. It wasn't shocking to God, because God knew it was going to happen. Mm. Shock is a human emotion. Sorrow is a godly emotion. Mm. And so I started beginning to learn uh, about grief, and say, you know, there is no cha- there is no growth without change. There is no change without loss, because you got to let go of old, grab mm-hmm. on to new. Mm-hmm. There's no loss without pain, and there's no pain without grief. A, a, a person who wants to grow without going through pain and loss is like a woman who says, "I want to have a baby without my tummy getting big and going through labor." <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It ain't gonna happen. You're yeah. gonna go through pain and labor. Yeah. All new life comes out of pain and labor. Sure. And so the greatest lessons come out of our failures and our well, griefs and our sorrows. Do, do, do have some tea. Um, Thank you. What, uh, I wonder if, as you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll obviously go to other subjects as well, but as, as we've started here, um, when you think back to that, that day, yeah. um, just over a year ago now, um, yeah. can you kind of describe any of the the initial emotions you went through, um, just oh sure, just briefly walk us through. Well, I, I that day I said this morning that uh, that week was what I called my battle for hope. Matthew took his life um, five days after Easter. Last Easter was the 33rd birthday of Saddleback. We started on Easter Sunday 33 years mm. ago in, in 1980. Now it's 34 years ago. 
we had had a giant, I had preached 12 times since Thursday, and we had over 50,000 people in attendance, and it was a big day for us. Many, many people came to Christ, and I preached on the hope of the resurrection. And actually, at the end of the message, I said, as more and more of people, as more and more people I love are in heaven, the more heaven becomes closer and real to me. My mom's there, my dad's there, my brother's there. I have a lot of friends there. Not knowing five days later my youngest son would, would be there. And I remember tearing up in that service. And so I preached on the hope of the resurrection. Monday, we announced that we were starting a radio broadcast across America. For 32 years, 33 years, I've said I was never going on TV or radio. <laughs> because I didn't want to be a celebrity, and I just didn't, didn't had no desire to do that. So I, I, uh, I said no, and finally I just kind of gave in. And what really convinced me to do it was people were already listening to the sermons on the Internet. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like last week we had probably 30,000 people listened online sure, sure. Yeah. to the service. So I thought, well, okay, I may as well go on the radio. And, and what I really was interested in doing was taking these messages overseas, but you kind of have to do national in order to pay for international. Because mm -hmm. international doesn't pay. Yeah. You put it on in Russia yeah, or you yeah, put yeah. it on in Africa. It's more of a missionary thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so my goal was to see if we could put it on in America in order to fund mm -hmm. international. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, on Monday, the day after Easter, I announced that we were starting a new radio program called Daily Hope. So it's the same thing. Hope of the Resurrection, Daily Hope. On Tuesday, I put out a press release that said I'm going to write the first major book since Purpose Driven Life 10 years ago, and it's going to be called The Hope You Need. So it's hope, hope. Wednesday I announced that the new sermon series I would start at Saddleback that weekend would be called Dealing With Your Hopeless Times, and that the first message would be called What to Do When You Feel Like You're Under Attack, out of Second Chronicles 20. Thursday. An article came out in Christianity Today magazine in America, and it's, it was Rick Warren's Final Frontier. And it's taking hope to the world, and it was on going to the 3,200 unengaged tribes that have no Bible, no believer, and no body of Christ. On Friday, I got up and my chest was very tight, and I felt like I was getting sick. And Kay said, "Do you think you're having a heart attack?" I said, "No." I said, "It's I'm, I think it's just bronchitis." And, David took me to the doctor and they did an x-ray and said, you have double pneumonia. Mm. So I called my associate pastor and said, Tom, you're going to have to preach this weekend because I've got pneumonia. Mm. And, uh, and I said, but I don't want you to do the message I was going to do on when you're under attack and starting this new series. I want you to do a message out of 2 Samuel 17 where David goes to Ziklag and... Uh, uh, the town is burned down, and the men have all been killed, and women and children are taken hostage, and the, the whole hit band of men, David, just fall on their face in grief. And, and I said, I, I've seen a little book with this title. I, I want you to do this title called What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life, not knowing that that day would be the worst day of my life. And uh, Matthew had been over uh, the night before and had come come to our house and we is perfectly normal. We often watch T V together, we'd laugh. Brilliant, very brilliant kid. And the tender heart, tortured mind. 
Just, everybody loved him. It's just, just filled with the, with the ang- uh, mental anxiety and depression and, and a lot of things like that. And uh, so uh, Tom had to preach that message. And he had prepared for it. And the next day when I announced, sent a letter to the church, said, my son took his life last night. Now I need you. I've been your pastor for 33 years. I need you now. I need you to, to pastor me in all of this time. And uh, so Tom preached what to do on the worst day of your life that yeah. Sunday. Yeah. CNN showed up and covered the sermon. Wow. Yeah. And... Uh, there, there, there's different levels of grief. The easiest, I've done maybe a thousand funerals in my lifetime as a pastor. I've been at the bedside and a lot of people take their deep last breath. The easiest funeral are for an elderly person who has loved the Lord all their life. Mm. They're ready to go home. Yeah. It's, it's a celebration. When my dad died, my mom died, Kay's dad died, it's, they're ready to go home. Yeah. Okay. More difficult is the death of a spouse. Mm. More difficult that is the death of a spouse with little children left at home. Mm. That's very, very difficult. Yeah. Murders are difficult. Mm. I've done many murder things. But the most difficult is the death of a child, mm. without a doubt. Because you're not supposed to outlast your yeah. children. And you see your child yeah. die and you go, that's yeah. not right. Yeah. Over the top is suicide. Mm. Suicides are the hardest funerals yeah. to do. I'm doing the death of a child. It's a funeral my child by suicide and I'm a public figure and there are people on the internet celebrating my son's death writing all kinds of vile things because they don't like the stance I've taken on this or that and saying may he burn in hell and may Rick burn in hell too and lots of people actually celebrating and rejoicing and then armchair um, therapies determining why he had taken his life and all these different reasons So that was that's pretty brutal. I mean, I was going to say, it almost compounded the shock and the grief that, that yeah. there was this horrible reaction in some quarters. Um, you know, what, see, what drives that? Do you think? What and how did you cope with it? Well, as somebody who's a public figure, there's never a day of your life you're not criticized, and you have to live for an audience of one. You can't. Mm. You cannot worry about what other people think. The fact is, they simply don't know. Okay, the more people know you, the less they're likely to be critical of you. Mm-hmm. So, people who don't know you, who are the most critical, and the most judgmental, and the most to the most offensive. Yeah. But I said this the other night somewhere that you're, you're most like Christ when you remain silent in the face of criticism. Jesus was perfect yeah. and yet he was criticized and attacked and crucified yeah. a lot of people think if I could just be perfect then everybody would like me <laughs> no they won't because yeah. even Jesus was hated yeah. so even if you're perfect you're going to be hated by some mm. people mm. they just don't like you and a lot of people have what's called motivated reasoning which means if they decide to not like you they'll just look for reasons yeah. and it doesn't really matter what the reason is I, I, early on I was naive enough to think if somebody has something wrong about you, 
and they say that, they try to correct, and then you correct it and think, if I correct it, yeah. then they'll have the truth, then they'll like me. <laughs> no, it just makes them more mad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because they've already decided not to like you. And now you've made them look dumb by proving something wrong. Yeah. So now they've got to figure out yeah, another yeah, way yeah, to yeah. like you. And so one of the things, the biggest problem today, and this kind of switches gears a little bit, is the, the greatest fear among people in ministry, and even a lot of Christians today, is the fear of guilt by association. Mm. Jesus was not afraid to be associated with streetwalkers, mm. tax collectors, and lepers, mm. Mm. like that. And, and it drove the religious people fatty. Yeah. <laughs> okay, he said, I didn't come for the well. The sick need the doctor, not the well. And I want to be like Jesus. Jesus yeah. was called the friend of sinners. Now, a lot of people actually think that's a derogatory term, but I consider that to be a banner. Yeah, yeah. So, to be called the friend of God, to be called the friend of sinners, is the highest compliment <laughs> I think you can be because you're most like Christ. I mean, in your position, Rick, do take a bite as well yeah, of your, thanks. Of your uh, cream tea. Um, Would you like some? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, in, in the UK, we eat these things. Well, my wife comes from Dorset, and that is the staple That's you know, it? treat. Dorset cream tea is, is where it's at, absolutely. Um, I was going to say, I mean, you, you, you've already said, in a sense, you have a, a, a platform of such significance, um, speaking, obviously, this, this week here in London. Um, a very hard platform to publicly grieve from, in that mm. sense, because you're so exposed. How do you deal with um, the fact that you are under that kind of intense scrutiny, not just for this last year, but, yeah. but for everything you say and do and, and so on? Well, criticism has changed. Internet changed everything. Mm. I told some pastors this morning or, or last night, it used to be if somebody didn't like you, your doctrine, your position, or just your personality, They'd write a letter to the editor in the paper. <laughs> and if, if you happen to miss that day's edition, that night... It was gone. It's yeah. kitty litter. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, nobody sees it anymore. Today, anybody can say anything against you. It's permanent, it's global, and it's searchable. Yeah. yeah. Okay? And it's never going away. So there have been things said about me that are simply untrue. And they were untrue 10 years ago, mm. and they're untrue today, but they're still on the internet, and yeah. people will read it. And, and and honestly, and I don't want to be derogatory of journalists, because not all journalists this way, but some journalists are lazy. Mm. Mm. And, and they don't do their fact-checking. Yeah. And they actually go to secondary sources and read. And this whole thing about guilt by association. I have a gift of evangelism. So that means I spend most of my time talking with people I totally disagree with. <laughs> And who totally disagreed with me. Yeah. So I will go speak to groups of people, other religions, atheists, other lifestyles, all kinds of people. How come Rick's going to those people? I mean, you, you recently, or you've been invited to the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. And yes, yes. I've, yeah. I've spoken uh, uh, at rabbis' conventions. I've spoken at uh, Islam, Muslim yeah. conventions. Yeah. I've spoken at Davos World Economic Forum, TED. Yeah. You know, yeah. groups of uh, where a large number of uh, atheists would be, secular yeah. groups, um, gay groups. Mm -hmm. I've talked to all kinds of groups who they disagree with some of the things I believe and I disagree with some of them. But in the first place, there are two myths. 
One myth is that you must agree with everything a person believes in order to love them. Mm. That's nonsense. <laughs> My wife and I agree on a, disagree on a lot of things. And <laughs> Still we've been love married, each other. <laughs> we've been married 38 years and deeply in love, and we totally disagree on a lot of things. So that's nonsense. Mm. The other one is, if I disagree with you, then I'm afraid of you. I have mm. a phobia. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, no, I'm not afraid of anybody. Mm. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't have a phobia of different groups. I just might disagree with you. But it, that doesn't give me the right to disrespect you mm. or to treat you as a secondary person or mm. unequal. Um, I am commanded to love everybody. In fact, I'm commanded to love my enemies. Mm. And so what you have to do is you're, you're most like Christ when you refuse to get even. You're most like Christ when you remain silent in the face of criticism. Mm. Mm. The Bible says that Jesus stood before Pilate, yeah. and he was, and they accused him of all kinds of things. And they said, "This guy's trying to take your job." <laughs> okay, they, they want, they want, he, they, he wants to be king. Pilate looks at Jesus, and goes, "Are you kidding me? Are you really? You want my job? Is that true? Are are you a king?" Jesus would not even dignify the accusation with the response. Mm. He spake not a word unto them. He remained silent. You're most like silent. You're most like Christ when you are silent in the face of criticism. Mm. So there's a biblical reason, but there's a practical reason too. If I worried about what everybody else wrote and said about me, I would have no time to get anything no. done. <laughs> You'd spend the entire time trying to correct everybody. You have to learn to have a thick skin, yeah. I'm sure. You do. Yeah. Thick skin and, and tender heart. Yeah. Tough hide, tender heart. And so, for instance, my idea of, of evangelism is you build a bridge between your heart and theirs, and Jesus walks across. Yeah. You cannot win your enemies to Christ. You can only win your friends. Yeah. So before they trust Jesus, the question is, will they trust you? Yeah. And before people in the UK ask, is Jesus credible? They want to know, are you credible? Yeah. Okay. Before they want to know, is the Bible true? They want to know, do you tell the truth? Yeah. Are you Are you kind? Are you yeah, the real absolutely. deal? Are you authentic? Yeah. yeah. And so what I do is, it's very relational. Build the relational bridge. When you hang out with the people you're trying to win to Christ. The Pharisees always take pot yeah, shots, yeah. and they say, "Oh, in fact, there was a guy a few years ago said Rick Warren's trying to form a new religion called Chrislam. He spends so many time <laughs> with Islam, okay, that it's Christianity, Islam. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, Anybody yeah, knows yeah, by yeah, heart yeah. for evangelism, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, the fact that we're baptizing Muslims every week at Saddleback mm. Church, mm. okay." Among other things. So. I'm mindful of the time, Rick, and, and thank you for, for everything you've shared so far. I wanted to briefly ask, where, where are plans up to with, um, I know that uh, you, you were launching a number of sort of satellite churches around the world, and there was talk of one in, in London as well. Where, where is the idea of Saddleback London up to? At the uh, we're hoping to start Saddleback London at some point. We, we picked out 16, um, have you got time for me to tell this to you? Um, Cody, Cody, can I have a little few more time? Is that all right? Thank you. Let me me give you a, a, let me tell you a long background story to this. Okay. Ten years ago, we launched a thing called the Peace Plan, P-E-A-C-E, based on Matthew 10, Luke 10, and Mark 9, the 17 instructions that Jesus gives to his teams when he sends them out. Mm -hmm. 
which to my knowledge, no missionary agency on planet Earth actually follows. I go, why aren't we following the actual words of Jesus? For instance, Jesus says, when you go out, don't take a, don't take a, a, a purse. Well, I don't know about uh, the British, but in America, every time we send out a team, they want to build and buy. Build and buy, build and buy. We're going to go build an orphanage for somebody. Yeah. Let me tell you, that's the last thing you need to do. If you want to help orphans, I could give you 90 other things to do before you build an orphanage. Because uh -huh. no kid wants to be in an orphanage. He wants to be in a family. Kids don't need an institutional idea. Yeah. That's, an, that's a Western idea. Put them in an institution. Mm -hmm. When you take kids off of their land, if their mom and dad die, you rob them of their land rights and they're guaranteeing perpetual poverty. So there's a lot of other reasons you shouldn't go build orphanages. But when we go into nations. We usually want to build and we want to buy stuff for people. It creates uh, dependency. It robs dignity. It's kind of, what are you going to do for me next? Yeah. We believe the Great Commission says, go into all the world and make disciples. Teach them to do everything I have commanded you. Not do it for them. Mm -hmm. Teach them to do. So the peace plan is essentially training. Yeah. Training them to do these things. P-E-A-C-E -E stands for Plant Churches that promote reconciliation. P is a double P. Plant churches that promote reconciliation. E is equip ethical leaders because corruption. A is uh, assist the poor. C is care for the sick. And E is educate the next generation. Mm. Every 10 years we set a, a goal for a 10 year decadal goal for our church. And in the year from 2000 to 2010 our goal was why don't we be the first church in 2,000 years of Christian history to literally go to every nation? Mm. Jesus said, go make disciples of every nation. Has anybody actually done that? <laughs> Has any single congregation ever actually sent members to every single nation? Mm. I don't think so. So why don't we do that? I mean, we're in a nation now. You can go, a world now, we can go anywhere in the world in 24 hours. Mm. So I didn't know how many nations there were. <laughs> I had to look it up. There are 197 nations in the world. It used to be 196, but Sudan just split. Okay. 195 are part of the United Nations. The only two nations not in the United Nations are Serbia and Taiwan. Okay. Those are the only two nations not in the United Nations. So he said, by the end of 2010, we will be sending our members that will have gone to plant churches, equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation in 197 nations. On October 18, 2010, we went to Nation 197. Wow. A little island in the Caribbean called St. Kitts. And we weren't going to, only 35,000 people, but we weren't going to leave them out. I've sent 23,869 members overseas to plant churches. So when I stand up on Sunday to speak 25,000, you've got to realize 23,000 were missionaries. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a whole different ball game. Yeah. They're not thinking about, am I going to get a new diamond bracelet? Because they've just come back from Mozambique. Yeah. So we went to every nation in that decade, 196 nations, 23,000 times. Now over 26,000 of our members have gone out. You're listening to The Profile Interview with me, Justin Briley. My special guest today is Rick Warren, uh, playing you an interview that I had with him in a cafe in South Kensington around the time that he was speaking at the HTB Leadership Conference. We'll be back with more in a moment here on Premier Christian Radio. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. You just tell the love of Jesus how he died to save us all. 
Bishop Michael Curry preached up a storm at the royal wedding, with his message being described as fiery, passionate and raw God. But what was it like to be Bishop Curry on that day? How has he handled the fame that's followed? And what would Jesus make of our royal family? In the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, We Ask Him. Plus, discover how Christians all over the world celebrate the festive season in our brand new December issue. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Good news, we've slashed the cost of subscribing to the UK's leading Christian magazine. Now you can read news from a Christian perspective and interviews with fascinating leaders for half the normal price. That's 12 issues of Premier Christianity magazine for less than £20. Plus, take out a subscription and we'll enter you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books. There's never been a better time to subscribe. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. I'm Justin Brawley and today I'm in conversation with Rick Warren, probably one of the most influential Christians in the world. He's a megachurch leader and a best-selling author and he was here in the UK recently with his wife Kay Warren. Before we get back to my interview with Rick, let's hear some of what Kay had to say at the conference this year. So that verse is in there, Ezekiel 36 and 37 of... Here's Israel in, in ruins. Their city's in ruins. There's no crop. There's no fields. They've been taken captive. They've got nothing. And yet in Ezekiel 36, God says to them, I am going to rebuild the ruins and the cities will be repopulated and the crops will come back in the fields and, and everything that has been destroyed, I will rebuild so that they will know I am the Lord. And I, that is my prayer, is that God would rebuild the ruins because a year ago our lives were ruined eric little my favorite my very favorite quote says circumstances may appear to wreck our lives but god is not helpless among the ruins circumstances appear to wreck our lives but god is not helpless among the ruins he continues to work out his plan of love and so what God is doing, both in us personally and in our family, Matthew's already, his ruins have been rebuilt. All that was ruined, rebuilt. He is running through heaven, laughing, shouting. I don't know if any of you know the term parkour. It's this really, anybody know parkour? Thank you. He loved to do that. He would jump over the furniture in our house and yell parkour. <laughs> parkour. And um, he's running through heaven yelling parkour. He's he is free from the crushing weight of depression and sorrow and God has already rebuilt his ruins and one day his body will join his spirit and he will be gloriously renewed and that's the hope that's the hope wherever there has been a ruining in your life know that God promises to rebuild the ruins so that's what goes back into my hope box I'm in the process of rebuilding hope You know. 
That was Kay Warren speaking at the HTB Leadership Conference in May this year. I caught up with Rick Warren, her husband, talking about the tragic events that led to the suicide of Matthew. But we also talked about their plans to see world evangelism take place, not only from America, but also from the UK. So let's pick up my conversation now with Rick Warren. Our goal for this decade is what we call the final frontier. Twice in the book of Revelation, it says that in heaven there will be gathered around the throne people from every nation, every language, every people, and every tribe. I actually take that verse literally, Mm. that somebody from every tribe will be in heaven because God wants somebody from every tribe represented. Mm. There's a problem. There's still, there was 36, we've gone down to about 3,000 tribes, 3,600 down 3,000 tribes, who have no Bible, mm-hmm. no believer, mm-hmm. and no body of Christ. This oh. is the final frontier. Mm. Well, the reason why we haven't reached these is because they are very small. Yeah. They all have minimum of 5,000 people. Yeah. No one of them have more than 100,000 people group. And you could say a people group, uh, let me give you a missiology term, unreached people group. The term unreached means less than 2% of the population is Christian. Yeah. So that might be the city of San Francisco, mm-hmm. less than 2% sure. population. Yeah. Unengaged means no believer, no Bible, no body of Christ. That means no witness at all. No witness at all, yeah. So yeah. I said, we got that's our next goal. Yeah. How do we get at least a portion of scripture, a Bible, a believer, and a body of Christ in in those 3,000. We're doing fine. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. By the end of this decade. And it's not my goal to do it all ourselves, but to mobilize churches who say, we'll take that people group. We know where they are. For instance, we know 400 of the tribes are happen to be in Sudan. That nation, along with China and India, have the largest unengaged people groups. So we actually use two different models in the peace plan. In, in America, when America... President Kennedy stood up in 63 and said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade. Rice University, 1963. The technology had not been invented. Mm. There's more technology in that cell phone than NASA had to send people to the moon. There's more computer in that cell phone today than they had to go to the moon. So you never confuse the decision-making with problem-solving. You make the two different phases. You make the decision, and then you solve the problem. Then you solve the problems, yeah. So what they did is they said, we're going to go to the moon in three phases. Phase one was called the Mercury phase, and it was seven capsules sent into space and come back down. And the whole goal was this, can we put a man in space and bring him back safely? That was the whole goal. They didn't actually do anything when they were in space. In fact, they could have sent a monkey, and sometimes they did. (laughs) But it was, can we put a guy up there and he actually lived? And so that was the Mercury phase. They did it seven times. The Mercury phase of the peace plan was 2002 to 2006, four-year period. And I sent about 4,100 of my members overseas. Can we send them overseas, do P-E-A-C-E, and they live? (laughs) Now, when they came back, we learned a thousand ways that don't work. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. Uh, we just we fail fast. That's a key. Yeah, fail fast. So we're not afraid to fail. I can teach you a thousand ways to not do missions. <laughs> but we found a couple dozen worked really, really well. And fortunately, we got all four thousand back safely. <laughs> then we went to what we call the Gemini phase, which was practice all the stuff you've got to do to go to the moon. So they sent a guy in space. Can he stay up there as long 
as it takes to go to the moon and come back. And you do space docking, space walking, all these things. So our Gemini phase was 2006 to 2010. And that's when we sent 23,000 out to go to 196 mm. countries. Now we say, now we're going to the moon. The Apollo phase is we're going to the moon, which ultimately is these 3,000 tribes that still have no body of Christ, no believer, no, no, uh, no Bible. And we know who they are, but there's often large barriers, cultural barriers, political barriers to get to these groups. Mm. So let me switch metaphors now. It's kind of like climbing Mount Everest. You can't go to all these tribes in one day. You can't climb Everest in a day. What you have to do is you have to go up a few thousand feet and do a base camp. Uh -huh. Then you go up another few thousand feet and do another base camp. Then you go up another few thousand feet and do a base camp. And, go, and eventually you get to the top. But if you get in trouble, you can get back to that nearest uh -huh. base camp. The whole idea is Saddleback's expanding to what we call strategic global cities, like London, uh -huh. is to establish base camps for the churches of London who are going to go okay. to those other, place, yeah. other places. Our goal in going to any city is not to be the biggest church. Sure. Our goal is to be the most resourceful church of the churches that are there. Okay. I've trained over 400,000 pastors in 164 countries. A lot of them had to come to the States. Yeah. Others, we went out to their village. Yeah. But he said, if we put a training hub in Berlin, mm. in Moscow, mm. in Johannesburg, in Tokyo, mm. um, then everybody didn't have, kind of have to come to the yeah. States. And, and it needs to be, though, still a church. It needs to be like that community that, that kind of... Exactly. We're going to do the, three the things. Thrust. A Saddleback, for instance, right now we have Saddleback Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. We have Saddleback Buenos Aires. We have uh, Saddleback um, uh, Manila. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Berlin, Saddleback Berlin. We're starting Moscow. We have a team there. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to do Tokyo. We're going to do London. Uh, we're, gonna, we're looking at Amman, Jordan for the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We chose strategic areas. And what we did is we laid out a map of these unreached, unengaged people groups. Those unreached people groups often are all in one country. They're spread out. I'm going to make this up. Let's say there were <laughs> Romanian gypsies, 19,000 of them with no yeah. believer, nobody. There might be 10,000 in Eastern Europe, 10,000 in Latin America, and 5,000 in East Asia. Okay. In a city like London, you have many representatives of those unengaged people groups right here. Yes, exactly. They're right here. Okay. So all we have to do is get the churches to open their eyes and go, they're right here in your backyard. Uh -huh. Some of those Sudanese yeah. are living in London right yeah. now. Yeah. And to reach them back yeah. in Sudan, it's a whole lot easier to reach them here and then, than reach them there. Yeah. So the goal of the peace plan is we, we say it's threefold. There's local, personal, local, and global. Personal peace plan is what you do with your friends and neighbors to reach and minister to them. Local peace is what you do in your Jerusalem and Judea, mm. in your community. Yeah. That's local peace. Global peace is overseas. It's in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the most parts of the world. And, and it's not sequential. It's simultaneous. It's and, and, and. Not go to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then mm. the end. It doesn't say that. Mm. It says and, and, and. Yeah. It's no sin for a church to be small. It's a sin for a church to have a small vision. Even yeah. if you have 15 people, you have to be global. Yeah. Even if you have to have a care about the whole world, even if you only got 15 people. So what we're going to do is our, our goal is in each of these strategic 
world-class cities to plant a saddleback. And it's like a pie chart. There's one-third, one-third, one-third. One-third is a model church. Mm. Okay, what, is it, what does a healthy church look like? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean large. It means strong. Okay? There's no correlation between the size and strength of a church. A church can be big and strong, yeah. big and weak. Yeah. Yeah. It can be small and strong, small and weak. Yeah. Big isn't better, small isn't better. Yeah. Healthy is better. Yeah. That's what purpose driven is all about. How do you build a healthy church? Yeah. So I'll give you an example of what health is. I was gone one third of the year this year yeah. because of Matthew's death. Yeah. While I was gone one third of the year, we had our greatest year of growth. Wow. We added 4,200 average attendance Goodness. over the last year. We baptized over 3,000 adult believers this year. I was gone one third of the year. Why? Because it's not a personality-driven church. And that doesn't make you uncomfortable or worried, like, no, they can do it without it, me. No, it makes me feel like, congratulations, <laughs> okay, that it, it, it's not yeah. personality-driven, it's yeah. purpose-driven. Yeah. So that's health, yeah. that is not dependent upon the vicar to be there, Yeah. yeah. okay? He yeah. doesn't have to be, so he, he's so trained the people to yeah. be self-feeders. Yeah. So one-third of the churches build a healthy model. And then one third is to be build what we call a peace center, which is to practice peace locally. And we in a peace center, you do all the social action things, caring for the sick, assisting the poor, dealing with uh, the, the immigrants mm. and sex trafficking and addictions and all these, which we do. We do mm. these. I mean, we've, last year we fed over a hundred thousand people through our food pantry. Yeah. So that's local. And then one-third pastoral training, so helping other churches build a model of a healthy church, build a model of social action in the community, and build a training center to support the other churches so that, for instance, UK churches would capture the vision of the final frontier, and then it's their cause. Yeah. It's not my cause. Yeah, yeah, it's their cause. Yeah, yeah. And it's not an organization. Uh, it's not a denomination. It's it's a strategy, and it's very much working to encourage the other churches that already exist. Within Absolutely, them. to yeah. take it and yeah. run with it. And yeah. so, for instance, we've already done training for other Hong Kong churches to bless their ministry from Saddleback, Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay, that church started last November. It's running eight hundred. Yeah, it's, it's just it's, unbelievable. It's a great vision. You've got this vision um, for what the future holds, mm-hmm. but this year has kind of, I suppose, been a an extraordinary one in terms of the way I'm sure you've developed as a person inevitably it's thrust it onto you in a way you know let me stop yeah. you right there and then you can ask your question mm. when Matthew died I took a four-month grief sabbatical mm. and as I said I did not preach and I did not teach and I didn't lead so what did you do for months I spent eight hours a day alone with Jesus mm. I'm not the same man I used to be. I have the same personality, same flaws. <laughs> but I'm just not the same guy I was. Because you can't spend four months alone in reflection in the Bible with Scripture and with Jesus and it not change you and deepen you and sensitize you to the pain of other people and things like that. So, yes. and It's changed you. And the... When things happen to you, they become part of your life message. It doesn't yeah. replace my life message. It just add, adds to the mosaic. It's another piece that's added. 
I remember you saying that you said to Matthew while he was with us, there's a purpose in the pain. Is it possible a year in to begin to see any kind of purpose in your pain? I saw it from day one. The problem was, in fact, you can't handle pain unless you understand there is a purpose. Any gospel that offers you a painless life is not the gospel. Yeah. The gospel doesn't offer a painless life on this earth, it does in heaven, but it does offer meaning, mm. which makes, makes pain bearable. Mm. You can handle almost anything if you see meaning in it. C.S. Lewis wrote the book A Grief Observed mm. when he lost his mm. wife. I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to observe my own grief. And so I watched myself go through what I call six stages or phases of grief. And they're not actually stages, because you can go back and forth sure. through them. But the first stage was shock, which is a, an emotion that's a human emotion. God's never shocked, so it's not a godly emotion. Mm. Nothing surprises him. But I... Um, shock for Matthew was a month not a day right. and I sometimes be sitting home at night I, go, I expect him to walk in the door and watch TV with us yeah. as he often did then it went to sadness or sorrow sorrow on the, on the other hand is a godly emotion mm. as I said the Bible says Jesus wept and we mm. talked about that and it is very the only reason you're able to grieve is because God grieves. Yeah. The Bible makes it very clear that we're made in His image. Mm-hmm. God has the ability. God weeps, the Bible says. And so we understand that. We're, we're most like Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Then the third phase is what I call struggle. The struggle is all the why questions. Yeah. Why me? Why now? Why this? The biggest one for me is why didn't you answer a prayer I prayed for 27 years every day? prayer I prayed more than any other prayer went unanswered. Why? Mm. Did you and, well, did you go through any kind of did that shake your faith in any way? Not was at that all. just a, not at all. a question it, you had to ask? I, in fact when I was on Piers Morgan on CNN I, I, we did finally did one interview and I said we'll do one and yeah. I chose CNN because I knew it would go worldwide yeah. and Piers asked me in the moment of all that when you're going through the struggle phase, did you ever doubt God? Mm. Did you ever doubt his existence? And I said, no, no I, ne- I never did. I doubted his wisdom. <laughs> Big difference. Yeah. I said, my kids have never doubted they had a father. They never doubted that Rick Warren was their father. <laughs> and they never doubted that I loved them. They know I love them. But they often doubted my wisdom. <laughs> Does Dad really know what he's doing right now? I wouldn't do that if I were Dad. Yeah, you know, and yeah. so that's and that's okay. And in the struggle, the the Psalms of lament become real to you. In mm. Psalms, there are 150 Psalms. They're not all praise and mm. thanksgiving. A third of them are Psalms of lament, where David's saying, "God, life sucks. Yeah, I don't like this. I'm mad at you." This, you, you lied to me, this is unfair, yeah. why aren't yeah. you here? And then he always comes around and goes, but you're stuck with me because where else am I going to go? You know? <laughs> and he comes back to this faith. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Psalms of Lament became very real. And in the struggle, you ask the why. Now, in the why, in the struggle, we always want to find an explanation. Yeah. Stupid. For two reasons. First, you're never going to get an explanation. 
on this side of earth, most of the things that happen in life, you're never going to get an explanation for. And part of it is, it's like an ant trying to understand the internet. Your brain capacity isn't big enough to understand the ways of God. If I could understand God, then I'd be God. But So you're just not going to get it. We're not going to, but the other thing is, explanations never comfort. We think if I could figure out why this happened the way it did, then I would be comforted. No, if my wife dropped dead tomorrow, and I knew the reason why she died, it wouldn't make it any less painful. What you need in tragedy is not an explanation. What you need is the presence of God. Mm. You need God himself, mm. not God's questions, not God's principles. You need the Holy Spirit, you need God's presence. So you finally come to stage four. You go shock, sadness or sorrow, struggle, then you come to surrender. Surrender is when you say, I'd rather live and walk with God and have my questions unanswered than have all my questions answered and not walk with God. Uh, I remember when Matthew was 17, he came to me and he said, Dad, it's real obvious I'm not going to be healed. Mm. This We've gone to the best doctors in the nation. I've taken the best medicine, got the best therapy. We've had prayer warriors, intercessors, deliverers, everything. You can imagine nothing has worked. Why can't I just die and go to heaven? As a 17-year-old, what do you say as a father to that? Who's a kid who's been in pain since he was born? I said, Matthew, you may want to give up, but I cannot. As your father, I have to believe always that there may be an answer out there at some point. He made it another 10 years. I think he's one of the most courageous people I've ever met. Because he had enormous, he could walk into a room in the party and instantly know who was in the most pain. Because he was in pain. He would make a beeline for that person and spend the rest of the evening encouraging them. Because he would have made a great Christian counselor. So you go to struggle to surrender. And when Matthew died, I received maybe 30, 35,000 letters of condolence mm. from around the world. I mean, everything, rock stars, prime ministers, presidents, you, you name it, mm. a lot of famous people. But the ones that meant the most to me weren't the VIPs. The letters that meant the most to me were letters from people that Matthew had led to faith in Christ. Wow. And they said, I'm going to be in heaven because your son brought me to Jesus. And I wrote in my journal that day, and I later put it on Facebook, I said, in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. And we're all broken. Mm -hmm. we're, all, we're all broken. So God only uses broken people. So you get from the struggle to surrender. Then you come to stage five, which is sanctification. That's the Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. That's the purpose. And, I mean, I knew from the very beginning, the night that Matthew died, we were standing out in front of his house with his doors locked and we don't have a key to get in. We're waiting for the police to come break down the door and we, we fear the inevitable. We're standing there, Kay and I, holding each other, sobbing in tears. And Kay reaches up and she's wearing a necklace. Um, and it had two words on it that was the title of the last book she wrote it said this choose joy choose joy and I looked at her and I thought are you kidding me? 
how, how do you choose joy when your son mm. on the other side of that wall probably has just taken his life but it's that kind of faith and that and the importance of small groups mm. I just talked to a group of UK pastors the largest pastors in, in the UK uh, largest pastors churches, <laughs> the largest churches and told them you've got to get people in small groups yeah. my small group was the stability for me this last year the one I'm in right now, it's four couples, four women, four men, four guys, and, and our wives. And we've been in our, this group 11 years, that's what yeah, I've been in now. Yeah. I've been there for them and their pain. When, when Matthew died, when we were there on that, within 30 minutes, they were on that sidewalk with us, standing there and hugging us and just being with us. And, and the deeper the pain, the fewer words needed. Yeah. When you're in deep pain, you show up and you shut up. You just need the ministry of presence. And I just remember the guys in my group hugging me while I just sobbed. And they didn't need to say anything. They just needed to be with me. And that night, my small group came and spent the night at our house. We didn't have beds for them. They just slept on the couch, kitchen, wherever they was. We're not leaving you alone. So it is your faith in God and believing in purpose. And But it's also the body of Christ. And a lot of people don't have that safety net set up before the crisis comes. So I make, made a passion plea. Saddleback's the only church in America that has more people in small groups than on the weekend. Yeah. So for instance, this weekend we had maybe 25, 26,000 people in church. I have 40,000 in small groups. Yeah. I have 8,200 small groups. Yeah. And they meet every week. And th those people, if I were to die, the church would continue. Yeah. Why? Because the yeah. cells, yeah. the life yeah. is in the cell. Yeah. It's um, been so good of you to spend the time. Re yeah. Really appreciate it. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap things up now. Um, All right. I know that though... Well, then I'm going to have to give you one of these. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. Thank you so much for, for spending you, time Justin. talking. God bless and, you. Um, and we really appreciate it. Well, I enjoy, I enjoy reading... Uh, Christianity because uh, I, I love this country. I don't know if you know this. Um, I don't know if I told you this 10 years ago, but my great-great-grandfather was led to Christ by Charles Spurgeon. Really? And was sent to America as a church planter. Oh, how extraordinary. I'm a, I'm, my father and my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather were all pastors. Wow. I have a lot of Spurgeon's handwritten <laughs> stuff in my library. I, was, I have the original oil painting. Wow. that was given to there us and all this at my house. So. Oh, fantastic. You've been listening to The Profile Interview with me, Justin Briley, in conversation with Rick Warren. Thank you for listening to today's Profile Interview. There'll be another significant Christian interviewed at the same time, same place next week.